The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like, I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this, and then the pandemic happened, and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time, like, second-guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like, we're human. It really does improve over time, and I think sometimes when you're starting out, you kind of almost expect yourself to have, you know, super high standards from the start. You know, you want to do your best at the start, absolutely, but you're never going to be perfect. Plus, share their biggest secret, their favourite breakfast cereals. My favourite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain. Rice Krispies. It's pretty boring. Weetabix. I have a clear winner. It is uh, Cocoa Pops. Welcome to the Serial Entrepreneur Podcast, hosted by Startups Magazine. Today, I am joined by Tom Ferry. Tom is the founder of Stakester, which is an esports mobile app that allows competitors to play their favorite games for cash and prizes. He is a successful podcast host and author of the soon-to-be-released How Not to Fuck Up Your Startup. Tom, what is up? So to start off, as it's called the Serial Entrepreneur Podcast, the question we have for everyone is what is your favorite breakfast cereal no it's a great question okay uh so i'm um this is a really good question and i fucking love this i don't want to go too deep into it here buddy but like the reality of it is like yeah different series different times of day okay right if you're trying to be like properly manly like you can't say that anymore because it's a bit toxic toxic masculinity but i'm putting it out there but if i get cancelled for saying this i'll put it out there the most manly cereal you can have is porridge all right Okay, and I don't mean any of that ready break bollocks. Like I'm talking full on jumbo oats from your boys at Jordan's or Quaker, and you just get in there and you're like, yeah, and yeah, and you almost want to say it with a with a Scottish accent. You're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have some porridge for breakfast because you just feel stronger. Like you can deadlift. It, this is real science. I guarantee, if you have a bowl of porridge in the morning, you can deadlift at least. 0.025% more than you could without it. Yeah, that's it. That's real science. Um, other than that, I have granola all the time. In fact, the reason that I'm not as jacked as I should be is because I eat too much granola. It's a real problem for me. I can't handle it. I don't, if it's there, I'm eating it. And I don't just stop at one. I just keep going. But yeah, on the granola, <laughs> so I'm going to really get into this. I'm just a huge fan of granola. It's the sugariest thing in the world. It's terrible for you. It's so overpriced. You go in there, you go and get a box of like Liz's, which everyone will know. And if it's classic Waitrose fare, makes me sound hyper privileged. You go in there and it's like £6.20 for two bowls of cereal. And it's just 99% sugar with the occasional bit of porridge added on there. Anyway, that's my favourite cereal. You probably, it's too much for you. You might have to edit that out. But anyone who's listening, don't scrimp on the quality of your honey nut. Um, on your crunchy nut cornflakes. Don't go for own brand. I've made the mistake. I did it at uni. I regret it. Don't do it. Always go for premium with Kellogg's. This is the worst intro you've ever had to your show. Anyone who's listening, I'm sorry about that. You don't, you don't, you might get some better content later, but the question was asked and I answered it. There you go. We, we spoke a little bit about the um, the podcast you've hosted. I had no idea it was successful as you said. Tell us a little bit. You said, what was it, uh, 23rd largest in Europe? We're technically the third largest entrepreneurship podcast in Europe in terms of total listens. We were, yeah, for a short period of time. I'm very proud of that. So I, when I started my current company, Stakester, I was technically 
a second time founder because I'd been on the founding team of a previous business, which was incredibly successful. But ultimately, I had fuck all to do with their success. I was a little bit like a VC who calls themselves an operator, which is operator is not a word. It means you're just an employee at a business. And they always say like, oh, I grew the business from two employees to 700. No, you didn't. You worked in HR. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with working HR, but it doesn't mean you grew the business in that way. You contributed in some guise. Anyway, but I was a bit like that. And I was a second time founder on paper to all intents and purposes. And so I thought I was amazing. Um, and then I started trying to run my own business and realized I knew nothing about how to run a business. I knew how to sell to customers. I knew that because I'd worked in in commercial before. And I was very confident. I had an idea, I had a really good problem I wanted to solve. I knew about brand, a bit about brand. I knew enough to go and start a business. But there's a lot of things I didn't know. So things like what actually goes into a pitch deck? What do any of these things that VCs talk about mean? What the fuck is a pre-seed? What the fuck is a seed? I don't know what any of these things mean. And so there's all these words that are thrown out there. And I was like, right, I need to phone up some people who know what they're talking about. So I phoned up a couple of people and I had And also, I had a terrible network. My network was just like this army of, like, corporate people, okay? They didn't really know what they were talking about. So I started, yeah, trying to introduce myself to people and started trying to become friends with them. And they're like, fuck off, just another founder. And then I was like, I started asking them for advice. And I thought to myself, do you know what? What do VCs love more than anything else? Talking about themselves. And so I um, I thought, I'm going to start a podcast where I can talk to VCs. But what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to distill real information from those people that I have questions for. Like what happens in an investment committee? How many pages should I actually put in my pitch deck? And when you look at my pitch deck, what do you actually read? If I send you a cold email, are you actually going to respond? Are intros that important? Can I connect with you on LinkedIn? Are you going to respond to my LinkedIn messages? All these kind of questions I want to know the answer to. I'm just going to answer them and record it. And then I recorded it. And then lo and behold, turns out, I wanted to know the answer to these questions. They were listening too. And there's only, there's basically like three rules to having a successful podcast. Okay. One, start. Two, make it interesting. Three, keep going. That's literally it. Everyone quits. Hardly anyone starts. And a lot of people are boring. So it's like, there's a lot of very unsuccessful podcasts out there. And that's it. So I just carried on. Um, and then uh, we just got over 100 episodes now. And it kind of evolved into this journey where I started bringing on, I was like, there's other problems, which aren't, aren't just about VCs, but founders as well. So like you start talking to founders, you're like, yeah, and it kind of happened as my business was growing. And be like, what is performance marketing? Like, how do I actually build a brand that people resonate with? People say that community is really important. I don't even know what that means. What is a community? What the fuck is that? My business needs to have a community. It's a community-based business. What do you fucking mean? I don't know what that means. There's people on my product. Oh, uh, Tom, you need to have, you know, like a, a K factor of one. Is that is that to do with drugs? I don't know what this means. And so I started inviting on founders who had solved these problems and invited them on. And another problem I had as well, which I tried to solve a bit differently, I used to read loads of business books. I still do, read them all the time. So you can't see this because this is not filmed, but behind me is a, a plethora of incredibly dull books. And the problem I had was they were all books about like some guy or girl who was amazingly successful like 10 years ago and has whittled it down to like one concept, like the lean startup or blitz scaling or whatever. And it's like, fuck it, hell. Dude, 
you're so you're so disassociated with my problems right now. I don't want to build a billion dollar business today. I want to find enough money to make payroll. And so I was like, I'm going to start getting some authenticity here. I'm going to start bringing people on who have just been through that problem and can still feel the scars, still got the, the pain in their legs from the squats, proverbially, the proverbial squat pain, the doms from, from, work, from, from being in a startup. And um, I started interviewing those people. And then the show got even bigger because they care about authenticity. And that's the end of that little monologue there, Anton. I had a question because I'm fascinated because I have been reading more business books and stuff as I get older. Why do you think certain ones blow up and certain other ones don't? Because I feel like you go into the business section of any store and it's like five tips to become a billionaire tomorrow. The same thing with kind of fitness books. You know what I mean? Like three tips, the three minute body, the two minute body, the one minute body. And I've always wondered, like, what is the ones for someone who's obviously read more about it? What makes, what is it that stands out? And why do certain people go for certain books and kind of disregard the other ones? That's a great question. And I care a lot about this because, plug, I have a book coming out. So I think, like, who buys a book that says you can have a body in 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 10 minutes knows it doesn't work. They know it doesn't work. But just by picking up the book, you're doing something on that journey to getting to that goal. Okay. And life is about small steps, not big steps. It's about taking lots of little small steps towards a goal. And then you get there. And I think what a book that has a very quick solution, those kind of things really resonate with people because it means there's very little friction to achieving this goal. If you had a book that was just like the billion dollar business, or not even a billion, it's one word. If you said the $700 million business, you'd be like, fucking hell, that sounds like a big read. Yeah. Whereas you said the three step process to becoming a billionaire. I can do three steps. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Step one, have rich parents. Damn it. (laughs) There you go. But like it's so there's like so I think there's a friction thing there, first of all. Actually, so I slightly different to your question. I'm going to rephrase it slightly. I think there are three things that make a book successful. All right. And firstly, I think it's just down to title. Okay. All right. So if you are a big name, like if you're a huge name and you are like, if, if LeBron writes a book about how to play basketball, I'm going to read it. Yeah. Okay. It's going to happen. Doesn't matter what the title is. It could just be the book. Yeah. I'm reading it. Okay. Okay. That's the truth. And so that's what you got. But if you don't have that celebrity status, you've got to look at title. So the title is so powerful because people say never judge your book by its cover. It's literally the only way you can judge a book. So dumb advice. But the title has to resonate with you straight away. Okay. So if it's fiction, if I look at something and it says the hunter, I'm reading it. Sounds great. I love, I love this. It sounds great. If it says something like, I don't know, the small mouse moves slowly across the field of corn. I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, so that title will grab you. And particularly business books, your title has to be in relation to something that matters to you or have a really powerful word in there which stimulates you. So, for example, surrounded by psychopaths. I want to hear about psychopaths. I'm going to read this. Okay. Or it might be like the lean startup. Lean sounds cheap. I'm in. I'm going to read that. 
Yeah, you know, those kind of things. So it really stimulates, blitzscaling. Yeah, I want to grow really fast. I'm in. Okay. Donut economics. I'm like, well, it does sound interesting. I want to understand donut economics. Jimmy, you know, you've got to have like that. It's got to have that thing where it's got to have that title that it's going to either speak to a specific problem with you. And the third is timing. Okay. I think that's a big thing. Like two years ago, if you had a book that said how to work remotely, that's flying off the shelves. Okay. Yeah. Like how to make friends on Zoom. Give me the book. <laughs> like, is that. Whereas now it might be like how to save money during a credit crisis. Okay. You know what I mean? So, like, the timing of it is really good. And so I think those are the three ways you can have that. That's what makes books successful. Person, timing, title. There you go. That's it. I'm not a publisher. Don't know what I'm talking about, but um, that's my, that's my view. I think also it's interesting what you said is because it's so true about if just looking at the more kind of like those fitness books and stuff, I think if just, if the title indicates some sort of success, I think there's probably some form of almost like a psychological enhancement of like, Oh, I bought the book now. Now I'm on the way, even if people don't even read it, because I feel like there's so many times you go to people's houses and they have all those business books. But then I always wonder, like, how many of you have actually read all those books on your shelf? And I feel like just kind of buying one with a sort of stimulating and promising title can really help. Yeah, absolutely. It can. A lot of time when you read those books, I think a lot of those books are more about giving you the confidence to go and do something. You'll make you feel like you're doing something rather than necessarily implementing them. And that's kind of why I decided to write a book, actually. Uh, so we sort of segue into that because I was a bit like, it frustrated me that every time I got one of these books, the concept was sold to me in the introduction. And then the rest of the book was just justifying it. You know, and that, and that, that was frustrating. And there's a lot of books like that where you can sort of learn the concept very quickly. And then it's sort of just reiterated throughout the book. And what I actually wanted was to create something that I could use more as like an instruction, like instruction manual, but like I could look more as a look through it and say, right, okay, I'm having a problem with X, then tell me how I can solve that problem. Tell me what the best practice is. And maybe not even the best practice, just tell me how other people have solved that problem. And so I can consider that as an option. Because there's always, there's always yeah, there's more than one way to do something. Tell me about, yeah, so the book coming out, how, how not to fuck up your startup. Where did that come from? And why do you think now you've acquired the skills to uh, have any authority on the subject? Well, first of all, I haven't acquired the skills. So that's the point. Okay. So it's none of, it's not my wisdom. So the book isn't about me. What the book is, it's a collection of lessons from people that I've met along the way. And then I put those lessons into the book because no one person really understands how to do it. And ultimately, if you run a business, you are the product of all the people surrounding you, all the people giving advice. And so I've taken the wisdom advice from people I've met on my journey and I've put that into the book. Okay. I'm not qualified. I, I essentially am just the king of secondhand wisdom in this book. That's what I am. I'm just taking these ideas and put them on and these concepts and these practices and these behaviors and put them all onto a page so other people can learn from them and take them there as well. Because I've been very fortunate to meet some really smart people on this journey. So it's kind of like uh, the modern day meditations by Marcus Aurelius, just kind of grabbed, grabbed from everywhere. If I well, it, a little bit like that. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask, so Stakester, that was also an interesting one. I read a little bit about it. Tell us a bit about that. And is it, is it more of like the gambling side or what, what exactly is it? Quite the opposite. So we're not into gambling. So gambling is the principle of putting money on an outcome that you can't control. 
Okay, that's what gambling is. So like if I put money on the rolling of a dice, I can't control the rolling of the dice. I can't control a horse race or a football match. But the truth is like some, it's exciting when there's money on something. So if you and I are watching a match, um, you know, we put some money on what the score is going to be. It can be more exciting, right? It can make it a bit more tense, that dopamine here. So we wanted to create an environment where we can encourage a positive mindset, where you're backing yourself to get better, okay? Um, but still give you the dopamine here. So essentially, it's just that classic of like, you and I, we have a race and um, I'll win because I'm the fastest man ever. But um, I put, you would just say, like, let's both put 10 bucks on this and the winner takes the pot. Really basic stuff, that concept. And we're going to run harder because there's a prize at the end. You know, it's cool. And I think that's a really great thing because we do it all the time. That's what we do in our systems. Like, you know, we say, right, I'm going to spend loads of money to go to university because I think I'm going to get a good grade and I'm going to get a great job at the end of it. And I'm in control of this, you know, so that's great. It's a good mindset. Um, whereas putting money on someone else having a degree is a really dumb thing to do. So it's just like a really, so we wanted to encourage that uh, and build something on that, that psychology. And gaming was the natural place to do it. And we felt like this, the audience that we wanted to serve wasn't being serviced, which is a great thing as any startup. You know, so there's a lot of people who play games and want to be competitive, but they're not your classic esports player. They might be just some sporty cat, sporty guy who just like, yeah, loves playing like for a couple of hours every so often at the weekend or whatever, but wants to go out there and put some money where his mouth is, right? So we wanted to build a product that could enable that. And so we did that for FIFA and it went really well. And then last year we sort of stumbled across an opportunity in the mobile market and we're now uh, moving into the mobile space with mobile games and it's going exceptionally well. And we're very blessed to be in the position we are. It's hard, like it's incredibly hard. Like running a business is never easy. And we're in a time where, you know, we're a capital funded business and being in a capital funded business during a, uh, a credit crisis is pretty miserable, <laughs> but like, that's the game. And so did you start that before or after you started the podcast? I started the podcast after I started Stakester. Because the podcast came as a result of me struggling with some problems at Stakesta. And I was going to ask, going back to like the kind of the startups question as a total, because I've noticed, obviously you have more experience than me. There are so many startups I've seen with genuinely good ideas that literally just combust. And I know some of them, like even if they get a lot of capital, they just kind of blitz through money like there's no tomorrow. And then investors ask to see kind of some proof of, you know, success doesn't work. And then it, I... I don't want to say the name, but I used to work for a startup. That was a great idea. And they just, they, they kind of slowly started shooting themselves in the foot. And it was a real bummer. Cause I was like, Oh, why it's, it's a really, it's a fantastic idea. And I was going to say, what have you noticed in like patterns and stuff? Ones that stay successful and ones that don't. Yeah. So, okay. First of all, I, founders deserve all the love that they get because it's hard. Right. Okay. And no one's telling you, like no one really knows what the right thing to do is. And there is a huge portion of luck in whether you do well. So you might be lucky and meet the right person who wants to invest and gives you the right credit line. You might be lucky that your email gets through to a client at the right time. You might be lucky that you happen to land an employee who's usually un hugely underpaid, but they're amazing at executing and can do incredible things. Like, you know, there's all those factors that come together that, you know, and you might be incredibly unlucky. Like you might have started a business during just before lockdown in a retail space, you might be, you might have taken investment from uh, a Russian investor before the war. And then of course, since the war, people can't operate with you because the sanctions were against them. And that might be a perfectly legitimate investor. So there's lots of things that could make your life very difficult, which are outside of your control. 
you know, um, particularly now there's a lot of businesses that are, you know, venture funded, which is a pretty standard model, you know, for venture funding. Um, and, but now when capital dries up and it takes longer, people aren't prepared for that. And it's not that they're, they're bad at running businesses. It's just a case that we couldn't have predicted how long it was going to take for people, yeah, for how the markets were going to change. So those are things that there are facts of, and founders have to live with that all the time. And I think founders, you know, they have to be, I think, celebrated in many ways because they're taking huge risks and they're doing very difficult things that might end up having a huge reward or might fail. And that's very difficult for someone psychologically. But why do I think most startups fail? I think people give up. I think that's one thing. I think resilience is the number one skill. I mean, number one skill is resilience. I think that's it. It's like being able to just, no matter how many times you fail, just keep going. Even if you have to reduce your business down to two people, right? And then rebuild again. Like, you just, you've just got to keep going. Okay, there is that. The second is they don't talk to their customers enough. That's a real common problem. Is that they make the mistake of just thinking they know what their customers want rather than talking to them and really understanding. That's a really common problem. And the, on the podcast, actually, and in the book, the number one piece of advice that comes up more than anything else is just talk to your customers. Just talk to your customers as much as you can. And the third is focus. Like, it's very easy as a founder or a startup to want to go after everything because you have that freedom where you can probably go and make something work for everything. But the truth is it's better to be world-class on one thing than distinctly average at 20 things. And so I think focus, resilience, and talking to your customers, those are the kind of three things that really matter. Yeah, Bruce Lee said that, which I always thought was interesting. He said, I fear not the man who's practiced a thousand kicks one time. I fear the man who's practiced one kick a thousand times. A hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah. I was going to ask, so we spoke a little bit earlier before I started recording about Sweden. What are some of the things you've noticed working business kind of in different sectors of Europe? And if you are starting a startup, what are some areas to avoid and where are some areas to go to? I think across Europe, there's a huge, there's a great energy all right about that so the end you, you i think and there's lots of great startup communities across europe like obviously stockholm uh tel aviv berlin and um, they're, they're really exciting places where lots of great startups are coming out even like paris and there's so much great tech in malaga you know like it's it's really impressive and it's amazing like and i say impressive like i don't know why i'm impressed by it's just it's just there's a lot going on like it's really cool I think London is still the hub for me, like it's still the place to be because there's more investors, there's more investor community, there's more of a startup community and there's stuff going on all the time. It's a huge community. It's great. And I think that um, London's great for that. And the UK is very good in terms of tax support for startups, which I think is incredible. I do um, vary from place to place. I don't know that the energy is good. I think, there's, I think there's great startups everywhere. You know, I think wherever you go, I think that, you know, and I think, I don't know, I can attest to like there being, you know, different types of founders in different regions. But I think just generally speaking, I think the, you know, Europe as a whole is a really great place to be. We're not as, um, we're not as, we are a bit behind the US in terms of our growth mindset. I think, you know, like there's a bit more pace, a bit more aggression in the US, which I like, but it's also has some problems. We moved very briefly into the sort of blockchain NFT space and then quickly moved out again. And that was quite interesting because that was a that was an interesting journey to be part of because yeah, but it was just so much energy and so much stuff. And it's all being, yeah, pushed out of the US and being led by the US and that was really exciting. 
and usually that's where the next wave is coming from. Um, so yeah, I don't really have a very good answer to that other than like, it's just a great place to be. Yeah, I think I always find it fascinating because I, I look, because I, obviously growing up in the US and stuff and I've worked many, everything from restaurants to businesses and whatever. And there is a much higher level of just kind of like, what do you mean, bathroom breaks? No, 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 we, we, don't, we don't do that over here. Whereas in England, and which I prefer, like I prefer, there, there was, I saw a meme a while ago and it said, I work for an English company. And I was like, hi, I have 10 weeks vacation now. I'll call you guys when I'm back. And then working for an American company, I have I'm I'm doing a kidney operation in about five minutes. But don't worry, I'll still have my cell phone on me in case anyone needs to call me. So true, yeah, definitely. Yeah, trying to raise money in Europe in the summer is just a joke. And so overall, do you think if you were to start a startup, so you got a kind of a you know I hate that word, but always oh, the unicorn idea that everyone always hypes about. Would you would you recommend trying to go for European funding or American funding? For those listening, if they have a kind of a niche and novel idea, I'd recommend not going for funding. I'd recommend, you know, if you have an idea, if I, if you have an idea, like I think that the, sometimes you have to, depends what the idea is, but like try to bootstrap as long as you can get customers paying for it. It's really hard, but like the people who I think who become recession proof and become, and I think are the real rock stars of this business are people who bootstrap, you know, like, yeah, we've raised quite well. But I'm always so envious, and sometimes that's celebrated. But I'm so envious of people who bootstrap, yeah, because that's the purest form of business for me. Is like you know you've gone out there and you've managed to get someone to buy your product and fund your business. It's amazing. It it bums me out to say that unfortunately we have hit the time mark, which sucks. I think I could have spoken to you all day. So I really yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Tom. The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this and then the pandemic happened and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time like second guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like we're human. It really does improve over time and I think sometimes when you're starting out you kind of almost expect yourself to have you know super high standards from the start you know you want to do your best at the start absolutely but you're never going to be perfect plus share their biggest secret their favorite breakfast cereals my favorite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain Rice Krispies it's pretty boring Wheatabix I have a clear winner it is uh, Cocoa Pops